Stand, if you would, please, and uh, let us read a passage of Scripture together. Second Peter 1, 2 through 4. It's, uh, it's a great passage of Scripture. Uh, my, my doctoral degree, this was my main passage, actually. Second Peter 1, 2 through 4. Let's read together, shall we? Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us by His glory and goodness. Through these, He has given us His very great and precious promises so that through them, you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Father, this is a very, very important passage because it's what the Holy Spirit does to us when we embrace Jesus. It brings all of those promises to bear upon us. They're ours in Christ. It brings us into a new family and not just the church family, it brings us into the family of God. And it changes our nature. God, you no longer look at us as sinners. You look at us as the righteousness of Christ. Do we still sin? Yes, we do. But the blood of Christ covers over us. And so, Father, there's all kinds of depth in this passage that we could explore. But we want to focus on the participation aspect today because... Lord, there's a lot of people participating in things that are drawing them away from you, not toward you. And so help us to gravitate, Father, towards the one true God and to kind of be aware, Lord, of what's going around, especially in our community. Help us, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said with me, please. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you so much. I forgot to pray for the offering, didn't I? We'll do it at the end. It's going to be a good day. Hallelujah. Uh, this past Sunday afternoon, Deb and I uh, attended an ordination service for Pastor Mark Padden at Host Church. Um, it was a great day, actually. I've been in ordination ceremonies and never, I was bored to death. Mark's was actually a really good ceremony. Very simple. Uh, had a lot of people who loved him. Uh, a lot of heart issues. Um, and at the end of the day... Uh, one of his former pastors came and shared just a very simple point. Um, and it was the passage with Peter in his sort of redemption, which is when Jesus showed up in the Sea of Galilee. As many of you know that story. Jesus had breakfast, fish cooking, and the disciples showed up. And Jesus just simply asked Peter three questions. What were they, church? Do you love me? That was the essence of the ordination, and that is no matter what you do as a pastor, the bottom line is, pastor, do you love me? And that was a very powerful, powerful message. Well, I asked Pastor Hollinger, who was sort of on his way out, still mentoring Mark, um, who will be preaching next Sunday, by the way, and I want you to come and I want you to invite some people, because if you don't know Steve, he's a great speaker. He's just an amazing man of God, loves the Lord deeply. Powerful prayer person, by the way. Probably one of the most deepest prayer persons in, in, in ministerial that I've, ever, that I've ever met. 
I asked uh, Pastor Hollinger if Mark had gone through an ecclesiastical examination or, or a doctrinal examination prior to his ordination. He said no, and it surprised me a little bit. Um, and for those of you who don't know what that is, it's a time when uh, other ordained clergy and other actually often academic professors gather together and they examine your belief system. What do you believe and why do you believe it? Does that make sense? Or as we call it, the Christian Inquisition. Because <laughs> that's exactly what it is. My ordination, um, I, my ordination took three hours. Uh, it started at 10 o'clock. We broke briefly for lunch and it ended at 1 or 1.30. Um, they put a table up on the platform just like this. I sat at it with my Bible and my, my document of what I believed. And for three hours, they went through every section and they grilled the daylights out of me. And if they didn't agree with me, get ready. Uh, because there was no holes barred there. They wanted to make sure you knew what you believed and why. They were not looking for you to agree. Some of them were. <laughs> but most of them weren't. Most of them allowed for some lateral belief in where things are at. Following that, I had lunch with Jim Barnes this week, who's our national director for the Evangelical Association, of which our, our church is a part of now. And I asked him if they still did examinations. Because Jim and Steve and all of us old guys, oh my gosh, I didn't, can't believe I just said that. Us old guys, we, that was standard pr procedure. You went through, you wrote your position paper on all 13 doctrines of the scriptures, uh, which ended up being usually 40, 50 pages, and you, need, you had to know it inside and out. And then all of us were part of that grill, <laughs> being grilled uh, community. And I've just noticed that there are a lot of churches aren't doing that anymore. And he said, well, the EA is an association, so we can't force people to do it. We can highly suggest that they do it because you want to know what that man believes. And then he made an interesting comment to me that connects with what we've been studying for the last two weeks and in particular today. He said, Dan, you're not going to believe this. And I'm not speaking ill of the UCC or beating up on it. I'm just stating a fact. He said, Dan, um, I got to tell you, we have a pastor in the state. He's still part of the UCC. Um, they may be looking to get out of it. In fact, I think now they are because he went and for ordination through the UCC and they rejected him. That rarely, if ever, happens, by the way. Because you're so well prepared that you stand. And I said, oh my gosh, what happened? He said his views were too conservative. And they rejected him. And he said, but you want to know what's so interesting? I said, please tell. He said, they just ordained a woman who is a self-professed white witch to the Christian ministry. I said, you're kidding me. He goes, Dan, I couldn't make it up if I, if I would. A witch ordained in the Christian ministry as a Christian pastor. And all God's people said, may it not be. Oh, my goodness sakes. I have more on that a little bit later. But I just want you to see the relevancy of what we've been talking about. This is not some abstract, obscure lessons that I'm trying to communicate to you. 
These are things that are happening in the Christian community right now and today. I want you to turn with me, please, uh, to a passage of Scripture that addresses this, because you know what? This is not a new issue. Paul had to deal with this same sort of issue in the first century church. And I'm going to ask you to turn with me, please, to 1 Corinthians, if you would, please. 1 Corinthians, uh, beginning in chapter 10, and we're going to start at verse 14. 1 Corinthians 10 and 14. This is a transition type of a message. So I've been talking to you about this sort of the spirit world, demonic, satanic stuff, and how we need to know that our enemy is real. That's why we need to be putting on the armor of God and all of those things that God has given to us to protect ourselves. Um, I want to put one foot in that again, but then I want to step us a little bit further and then move us into the, to the, uh, the month of Thanksgiving. Both of these passages connect in that way. So look with me, please, at 1 Corinthians 10 and 14. It says, therefore, my dear friends, you need to do what? Run. Run from it. Paul picks up on that same word in 1 Corinthians 6 when he talks about uh, the prostitute or adultery. Flee from all sexual immorality. Run. Don't mess with it. Don't hang out with it. Don't try to navigate it. Turn around and run. A great narrative of that is Joseph. You remember that in the Old Testament? Joseph didn't hang around when Potiphar's wife came in and wanted to seduce him. He turned around and left. She grabbed his, his, uh, his garment and his cloak, unfortunately, and that put him in a little phase uh, that God had next for him. Flee. Run from it. Don't hang around it. Don't mess with it. Flee from idolatry. Idolatry, from a Christian perspective, is worshiping anything or anyone other than the one true God. Very, very simple explanation. In Paul's day, this would have been self-evident. There were pagan temples all over Corinth. Apollo, Poseidon, Hera, Athena, all kinds of gods that would have assaulted the eye of every Christian having to live in that particular city. You couldn't get away from it. And society itself in most aspects, were actually tied to that worship. It was hard to sit down to a nice steak dinner without finding that it's been offered to an idol. It was hard to, to actually listen to new music. Why? Because new music was almost always connected to the temple worship. So you're, you can't listen to even things that are coming out. If you were in business, your dues were demanded by the guild cults for, of course, favor with the gods. So this was a hard teaching for Paul. How do you run away? How do you flee something that is so inextricably part of your life, a part of your community? Um, that's a very good question. I want you to notice the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians. I'm going to just bump here and then bring us back to 1 Corinthians today. Do not be yoked. There's some good farm language with you. Yoke has to do with what? Oxen or bulls or whatever you want to plow with, all right? And an oxen, that means you are yoked, means you're yoked with two things. And you have to pull together in order for that to work. So Paul's saying, don't be yoked with something that's pulling in a different direction than you're being pulled. Do not be yoked together with whom, church? Unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? 
Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial, which is another word for Satan? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God, interesting word, the place where you worship the one true God within you, and idols, for we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be what? Be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. You are connected to God in a very tangible way. God has taken up residency within you through the Holy Spirit of God. That's what Paul is trying to help us to understand. Paul, giving this societal message, says this. You all know the phrase, be in the world, but, but not of it, which is not always easy to do. Be in the world, but not of it. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 10, please, and verse 15 and 16. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 15 and 16. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a, your key word today, participation. All right, one more time. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a, key word, a participation. You are participating in something, which means you have an active involvement in something. That's what that word means. You are participating in the blood of Christ. And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Very significant passages of Scripture. If you haven't picked it up already, Paul's talking about communion. He's talking about the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist. Eucharisto in Greek means uh, to give thanks. It is the thanksgiving. So every time we take communion, it is a time where we rise up and we give thanks for what God has done for us, to us, through us. All of those wonderful words that we can use together. It is more, church, than just the symbols of wine and bread. They're, they're not just simply elements to a table. They represent your embracing and receiving the very forgiveness, the very life that's connected with Jesus. That is His death, His burial, His resurrection, His ascension, and His second coming. That package deal comes with Jesus and all God's people said, please. All of that is what is yours. That's what's being reminded of. And if I could just do a quick communion sermon to you, we, we do this. Um, he, he took the bread and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take this, eat this, receive this. Don't taste it, by the way. That's 1 Corinthians 6. People who just taste, they're not believers. That's not the symbolism there. When you embrace something, you do what? You take it all. You eat it. You make it a part of who you are. And that's what Christ is saying. And this is the cup. This is the blood which is given for you. You remember that part of it as well? This is the new covenant that I'm making with you in my blood. As often as you do this, remember me. There's the part that you need to remember. It's not only just the sacrifice. It's the second coming. 
It's all of those things wrapped up in, in, in one nice, neat bundle for us to, to help us to understand what this is. There is a participation in Christ in everything that he has done. It is a participation in his divine nature. The perfect and holy coming from, for those that are, that are broken and imperfect so that those are who are broken and imperfect can actually be perfect and whole. It's what Jesus does for us, just like him. This is why we're thankful people. Jesus did for us what we could not do ourselves. He changed our nature so that we could become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 and following. What's the point? There is no accommodating in this. It is not Jesus and all he's done for us and will do for us. And... And witchcraft. It is not Jesus plus Buddhist practices. It is not Jesus and New Age earth worship. It is exclusive and narrow and not accommodated or shared. It is not what in missions is called syncretism or the joining of other faiths together, which is often what happens. Oh, I've been worshiping my household gods. Oh, the missionary came and told me about Jesus. I'll put him right next to my other ones. You see how that works? It doesn't. Jesus will have no other competition. There is no other competition. Do you remember when the Ark of the Covenant was stolen? Do you remember when they brought it in the house of Dagon, the Philistines? The next morning, what happened to the god? Yeah, they said, well, we'll put the thing up. Maybe something just happened, a thing fell over. And the next time they showed up in the morning, not only was he fallen, but his head and his hands were cut off. God will not have competition. There is no competition with God. You cannot add. What does Belial have to do with Jesus? Rhetorical question. Nothing. It has nothing to do with that. Jesus has brought us into fellowship with himself, and that is represented by a sacred meal. That's why Jesus gave that last supper to his disciples, and he gives it to us. And as often as we do this, we remember him and what he did and what he's going to do. And there is no other false gods in that system. It's what sets Christianity apart from all other faith systems, church. He brought us into fellowship with himself, but he also brought us into fellowship with each other. Look at 17. Because there is one loaf, that's your communion language, we who are many are, however, church, yeah, we're one body, for we all share the one loaf. We all share in the person of Christ. So not only has he called us to participate in himself, but by coming and receiving that and taking that, ingesting spiritually who God is and what he's done for me. Not only have I done that, but I also then have now linked myself with all of you. Now, you may not think that's an advantage some Sundays, uh, but it is. It's an amazing advantage. I don't know if I told you this before, but, you know, I grew up in the United Methodist uh, faith system. And then when I started dating Deb, she was going to a Baptist church at that time. They believed in baptism by immersion. 
And my pa- pastor at that time really encouraged me to study that. And I came to the place where it's like, you know, I, w- I want that for myself. I thank God for my parents that they, they did that for me when I was a baby. I completely get that. But I want this to be my decision. And so I was baptized on a Sunday night. Um, my parents weren't there. They chose to go to the beach instead. Dub. And the amazing thing about it was when I came up out of the waters, the thing that was so visible to me was I looked out at my church and God said, here's your family. (laughs) And it just penetrated me like nothing ever did. It was like, oh my gosh, Lord, thank you. You know, my biological parents, which I love dearly and still love dearly to this day, they just didn't understand. That's okay. I love them. Still do. But what God did that day was he said, look, because of what Christ has done for you, he not only saved you, but he puts you in something, this amazing family of God. And that's a very private thing, by the way. Does that make sense? I'll give it to you because you hear this in the world. We're all children of God. Lie. The only way you become a child of God is that you have to be part of what? The family of God. That's how you are a child of God. Everyone is a created a creation of God, but we're not all children of God. Children of God come through blood. We are blood-bought. That's how we're brought into the family. And all of those things bring us together and help us to understand that. He goes to the Jews and points out another sort of an example of what he's trying to help us to understand. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices, keyword. do you see that? <laughs> it's been multiple times, church, which means you need to pay attention to it. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? What is he talking about? He's talking about the fact that when the Jewish people would bring the sacrifice, especially the fellowship and the thanksgiving offering, they would offer it to the priest. He would put it on the altar, sacrifice it, um, do whatever they needed to do actually before that, and then they would burn part of it up. But then they would give a part to the priest for him and his family to feed them because that was the Levitical law. And they would give the majority of it back to the person who gave it. So that the one who was worshipped and the one who offered and the one who brought were all part of this wonderful thing of worshipping God together in thanksgiving and and that's what Paul's trying to help us to understand, that there is there's something significant to that meal. There's something that happens when you come. That's why Paul so carefully in 1 Corinthians 11 says, when you go to the table, you need to search your heart. You need to make sure things are right, because I got news for you. There are people who've come and taken communion, and those people have fallen asleep. It wasn't because the preacher was boring. Do you know what that means? It's a euphemism. It means what? It means they died. They took communion in an unworthy manner, and it is so significant that God, God took their life. It doesn't mean we come to communion in fear. It does mean we come understanding what he's trying to help us. Here's the point, 1 Corinthians 10 and 19, and then I need to move. Do I mean that the food sacrificed to idols is anything or that any idol is anything? 
Before you tell me the answer, I'll just let Paul give to us, all right? It's in the next verse. What is it? Give me the first word. No. There is no such thing as another God. These idols are nothing. However. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to whom? Demons. Not to God. Because it is a spiritual meal. Does that make sense? It's not like we're showing up and going to Wendy's after church. We're talking about the spiritual significance of a practice in a worship service that links us with a God. That's what this is talking about. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be for the fifth time. I don't want you linked up like that. I don't want you participating with demons. Very, very significant church. There is no Apollos. There's no Athena. There's no Poseidon. Any of these mythological man-made gods or goddesses, that's what they are. They're made up mythological entities. But neither are they non-personal forms of sculpted rocks and wood, aware or unaware, when you offer a meal and participate in a meal in that realm, you are worshiping demons and not God. Notice the summarizing principle in 21 and 22. Therefore, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and... The cup of demons or devils too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we trying? Are we, are we stronger than he is? Rhetorical questions, of course, as we look at that. See, at the heart of pagan worship is a sacred meal of fellowship with someone who is diametrically opposed to the God you say you serve. So don't participate in this. You cannot serve two masters, Jesus said. You will either love the one and hate the other or flip. You'll love this one and hate the other. You cannot serve two masters. Let me give you three points of application as we close here. First one is this. We become one. That is a unity issue spiritually with those in whose worship we join. I want you to look at that in two ways. First of all, we have come together and we are here together, which means that we are worshiping what? The one true God. That's our belief. All right? There's some wiggle room here. I want to talk to you about that as well. It also means if you're not in church and you're at some other place who has a witch as their pastor, You are participating in whatever she is bringing. Because she is the interceder, by the way. That's scary to me, church. This, uh, this happened in our pastoral community uh, not too long ago. It was in the Reading area. It was in a, uh, a unity get-together. 
a Christian pastor was asked to pray a prayer written by a Muslim to Allah. I see a lot of heads tilted. (laughs) Can I say that one more time, just for clarity? A Christian pastor was asked to pray a prayer written by a Muslim to Allah. And with pride, she did. She needs to repent of idolatry and ask herself if she really is a follower of Christ or simply a part of the world accommodating Christian religious system. By the way, that's a real nomenclature. It's a real group. World accommodating religious organization, religious system. Is that amazing? If you want to sign up, I'll be out in the library. So. The Reading Eagle is often offering the opinions of, quote, Christians, unquote, that are calling everyone to put away which divides and, and promote unity. Some of our local universities are promoting the same thing. And I, with all love, say, sorry, that doesn't work. Um. It's absolute ignorance of Orthodox Christianity and what we believe. By the way, it's absolute ignorance of Islam and Judaism and Buddhism and Hinduism and witchcraft and New Ageism. They have no idea what they're talking about. Christianity is exclusive. Islam is exclusive. Judaism is exclusive. Buddhism is not even a religion. It's a philosophy. It doesn't believe in God. It's atheistic. Hinduism, polytheistic. Believe whatever you want to. You can believe in a rock or a doorknob. doesn't matter. Does that make sense? You following me? Yeah. Wicca. There is an entity out there, good and evil, but we're all connected to the world. So worship trees and dirt. Where does Jesus come in? He doesn't. Ignorance. They have no idea what they're talking about. All right? This leads me to my second point, if you would, please, which is this. We need to know from the Scriptures what we should believe about following Christ and what others think they believe about Christ. I say this because I hear Christians spouting that unity language. And I have to say, do you even know what you believe? You claim to be a follower of Christ, and yet you're claiming unity with a Muslim or a Buddhist or Baha'i. I don't understand this. What in the world do you believe? What does the scriptures believe? What do they teach about Jesus? Why are you saying this stuff? Because it's not lining up with what the scriptures teach. And then the second part of that is what others think they believe about Christ. And I've said this before. If you go to a, a Muslim and ask them if they believe in Jesus, they're going to say what? Absolutely. Sure they do. So do Jews. So do Buddhists and Hindus and Baha'is. They all believe in Jesus. That's not the question. The question is not do you believe in Jesus. It is what do you believe about Jesus? There's the question that you have to resolve. And you have to get to truth to figure that out. All right. Third point moves us into our transition today, is that we need to give thanks today. 
Because God has drawn us together into fellowship with each other, but drawn us to himself, this one true God and his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. He brings us together around the table at least once a month um, when that happens to remind us of our thankfulness and the things that we need to pay attention to. And that for that, we just give thanks. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus conquered our last enemy, death. He loves us so deeply. He proclaims freedom over sin, deliverance over the demonic. It is the good news that only Jesus and his church can give. It's the the good news that we need to protect from those who would seek to water it down and to deny its power. And that's what God has called us to do. We're going to do that together. We're going to pray and ask God for help. Let's do that, shall we? I'm going to ask, is there anything that we can pray for this morning as we do that? And as you're way out, if you make sure you put your offering. Bob, please.